Welcome to the Immeasurable Podcast at the Krishnamurti Center in Ojai, California. This series reflects upon Krishnamurti's work and how it directly impacts the listener. The invitation is to inquire together into the fundamental nature of our existence. Welcome back to the Immeasurable Podcast. I'm Leah Long, and I'm part of the group of people who produce episodes for the show. This episode is a rare interview between Evelyn Blau and Alan Hooker, a former cook for Krishnamurti. The late restaurateur moved to Ojai in 1949 because of his interest in the teachings and to help prepare food for the Ojai campus. He was also a former trustee of the Krishnamurti Foundation of America. He has asked a series of questions about his experience with Krishnamurti in this 1987 interview. I've re-narrated Evelyn's questions for better audio clarity. I hope you enjoy it. Can you tell us about your experience with Krishnamurti? Psychologists and psychiatrists nowadays are tremendously interested in the nature of human consciousness. Somehow they they have a different way of approaching it. They approach it by investigating one's past. But in order to do that, a creator of the investigating machine must take place, which divides the man from the consciousness and the one who's investigating. Krishnamurti now brings to bear the idea, which is rather new and original, that consciousness is a total affair, and it can only be investigated when there is no observer, when there's only awareness of the activity of consciousness, which is a completely different approach than the idea of dividing it up and trying to look into the past and look, therefore modify the future. And he is one of the first ones in this nowadays, seemingly, to approach the whole problem that way, so that somehow one is able to observe the movement of consciousness without attesting to the value of it or to any of its uh, lack of value. And so in the whole process, the consciousness emerges from the subconscious and shows itself, exhausts itself, and dissolves. And so the nature of consciousness then changes, becomes lighter. And this is not a method because there is no method, otherwise there's somebody who's going to apply it. And this is a a completely new approach to me to the whole problem of our pains and miseries. How did you come to Ojai and get involved in the teachings? I was living in Columbus, Ohio, and this was uh, 1946. And we were involved in the community there, and I first went out to hear Krishnamurti. Then I returned and continued with the theosophical work, as we were calling it. And I was a national lecturer. And because we were quite serious in the whole thing, we had uh, meditations every morning and all that sort of stuff. Well, I had been reading Krishnamurti a great deal after I came out here to hear him. And I was very serious about it. I was uh, attempting to understand what the man was talking about. And during these meditations, I was trying to find out what he meant by the nature of consciousness. And One morning, there was a tremendous insight or clarity, whatever you call it, I don't know what to call it, came. And it seemed as if I saw into the nature of the mind and thought and how it moved and how it was dualistic and how it was like one side and the other side and one side would reflect the other side, which was quite confusing. It was like these fun houses, you know, where all the images are impossible. And so I realized that in thinking itself, this was part of the thinking process. And so it was... uh, It was nothing but one giant illusion. 
And here I'd been doing all this talking and lecturing about the nature of the planes and blah, 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 and the whole thing at that time in the morning became absolutely ludicrous. And I just uh, left the meditation and I went down and I resigned from all the things that I belonged to, the president of this and so forth and so forth. And so then uh, I was free of that that whole thing. Well, uh, Dr. Paul Brunton happened to be in Ojai and he suggested at that time that I ought to go down a little cabin and recuperate because it's quite a shattered experience. So I went down and then eventually uh, Frank Noyes, my friend, uh, uh, said, what do you want to do now? I said, go to Ojai. So he said, when? And I said, right now. And he said, will Tuesday be all right? And I said, yes. So we left on Tuesday. Then I came out here to Ojai, and Mrs. Roger Kapal came up on the mountainside where we were living and asked if I would take charge of feeding and housing the people who were coming to the talks, and I could use the school and make some money for uh, Happy Valley School. Of course, Krishnamurti was interested and had helped start it. So that's what we did. And I've been here ever since. How do Krishnamurti's teachings differ from other teachers or organizations? I think the most important contribution that Krishnamurti has made to the thinking person on this planet is that he has caused us to investigate the nature of belief. Because most religions are founded on belief. And he explodes the whole thing as merely a process of thinking. And it leads nowhere in, in any sense of his terms. And he seems to be one of the first people who have said this outside of perhaps the Buddha. And it's rather startling and rather shocking. And it's disconcerting who people who are rooted in belief. People have asked, what is the relationship between Krishnamurti's teachings and the occult and theosophy and all that sort of thing? Well, most of the teachings of occultism and the whole school of Indian philosophy depends on belief, as was mentioned before. And in the dependence on belief, I am never free. And in Krishnamurti's teaching, one of the emphasis is on the freedom of the mind, where we're not encumbered with any type of thinking whatsoever, because all of it is based on illusion, psychologically. Many things happen around Krishnamurti to the various people who have known him and, and talked with him. And uh, I'd like to relate one simple thing that happened to me, which was not very simple in my life. But I had been writing recipes for a long time, experimenting and written, written them all down. I had made a, a manuscript and uh, I had sent it around to various publishers. It had been rejected by everyone because, as the little uh, inter-office memo said, who is this hooker? Ask James Beard if he's ever heard of him. But of course, James Beard never had heard of him, so that meant I was out. And so I thought, I'm not going to monkey with it at all. I'll just put it away and forget the whole thing. Well, in 1963, I was taking a walk with Krishnamurti up in the mountains, and uh, we ended our walk near Chalet Chukas with the uh, automobile that Devanda Scaravelli had. She was going to drive him back to Tanik, where he lived. And he turned to me suddenly and said, haven't you got a cookbook manuscript? And I said, well, yes. He said, you publish that. Well, it floored me. He got in the car and left, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. We had never talked about cookbook manuscript or anything like that at all. So I thought, well, that, that's it. So I came back, and my wife, Helen, and I, we spent from November to March publishing, getting the thing ready, and we published it. We put a thing on the table saying uh, $1 off for pre-publication orders and so forth. Well, because of that, in a series of events, another two cookbooks were published, and that was the money that made it possible for Helen and I to go to Switzerland every year for about 15 years and free for us to make one trip and me to make two trips to India, 
Without that uh, money from the cookbooks, those trips would not, never have been possible. Do you consider it a privilege to know Krishnamurti? You ask if I considered it a privilege to know Krishnamurti, and it's a very interesting question. Although I used to help prepare meals for him, and this went on many, many months and many years, I never felt I knew the man, because all was, to me, was the quality of nothing being there. There was no person that I could meet, like you meet other people with their habits and their likes and dislikes and everything. Here was a man that seemed to be completely free of all that, as far as I could see, and so I, I, there was no one to meet. But the privilege of sitting at the table and listening to him talk with people who would come, guests who would have problems, was there was nothing like it. In my life, I can't imagine of anything quite so marvelous as those uh, privileged luncheons with him. What do you know about Krishnamurti's early life? From all the readings I have done, Annie Besant and uh, C.W. Ledbetter were completely in accord with their idea that Krishnamurti was the world teacher. There were many things to indicate that, but one of the things that I read was that C.W. Ledbetter saw this young man, young boy, on the beach, and he, being a clairvoyant, examined his aura, and he found there was no selfishness in it. And from that, he told Mrs. Besant, I think we've found the world teacher. So then they began to look further and examine him and talk with him and everything. And through a whole succession of events, Mrs. Besant got in charge of him and raised him to be the world teacher. And he was carefully raised. I read one place where Leadbeater was even told that he must wear open-toed sandals and not have his feet covered. And it was also was very, very particular. And this all depended on the idea that there were masters who had selected them and had selected him, and the whole thing was engineered by these masters who were the ones who supposedly founded the Theosophical Society. And uh, maybe the Theosophical Society was founded so that it could present the world teacher, because he needed a platform to talk, and they provided the platform. In previous times, so-called real religious people usually went into a monastery where they could do their prayers and where they could do their service and so forth and so on. But it's very limited because of the contacts that they had. And so with the teachings of Krishnamurti, one lives in the world, theoretically but not of it, but in a totally different way, because they're open to all the things that come. And the benefit of this is, if one is to actually explore the hidden nature of consciousness, the subconscious, then we don't know what variety of impacts are needed to arouse this consciousness to reveal itself so that it can be explored and understood and dissolved. Because unless it's dissolved, by no manner of supplications and prayers can we ever have a life of what's called freedom. We may create an illusion that we're free, but the illusion under circumstances will break. And so Krishnamurti's teachings have shown a way where a man can live in the religious world and work. And then, if the consciousness is moving properly, work is seen constantly all around one. In other words, observation includes everything, and one of those things is work. So what can I do? It makes it possible, perhaps, for a human being to find out what he can do and enjoy every minute of it, with all the little difficulties that come along. And so, with the religious life, work then becomes a part of the religion. 
one works at the thing which they love to do, and in doing that, they add to the sum and substance of the affectionate regard which people have who love their work. They make life easy uh, for themselves and for everyone else because of this shining face which they may have, or hopefully they have. Krishnamurti spoke for many years, and you listened for many years. What kept you coming back to listen to his teachings? From the many talks that have been published and from many times of listening to Krishnamurti, the same questions would emerge in a slightly different garb. And his answers were always so interesting because they were never the same. And it seems that with the consciousness being free to move, it's not tethered to the past. And therefore, everything appears new. And if the consciousness has been to the point where it's the self is uh, not rampant, then there's a possibility of this newness coming into our daily life. And so when questions come up, we view the question as if we had never heard it before, because there's delight in just listening. And this state of listening is incredibly beautiful because it has such tremendous inner vitality in it. It's not separate from anything. It, it just is. And from there, I go nowhere. <laughs> just is. Did Krishnamurti ever help you personally? Many years ago, after I had moved to Ojai, we were having a terrible difficulty financially. We were hardly able to pay our bills. And it really got to me. And I was in a terrible state of depression because I could not see my way out. I didn't, I was old. I was in my fifties and uh, life was not <laughs> free from burdens of all kinds. And so I went to have an interview with Krishnamurti and I told him I was subject to these depressions. And he paused a moment. Then he said, do you think they could be habit? And suddenly I thought, my God, that's true. It is habit. Well, he said, if it's habit, he said, you have to catch the very first thought. Because if you don't, and the second and the third come along, it'll have to run its uh, rate like a cold. It'll have to go through the whole thing. So he says, it's very important when all of these depressions or anger or rage, any of these things come to catch the very first thought and he said, observe it until it disappears. And I've experimented with it tremendously, and I found that to be true. Not that I can always do it, but in many cases, it's possible. And that's a great relief. The Immeasurable Podcast is a project of the Krishnamurti Center, funded by the Krishnamurti Foundation of America. For information on our online community, programs, and how to support this work, please visit kfa.org.